First of all, I, I thought we could talk a little bit about meditation, if you have any questions about it, about the sitting practice itself. Um, there are a, a jillion, jillion words written about this practice. There are many, many schools um, built around this practice, expressing in different ways what this is. Um, But all of those words come out of this very simple thing that we're doing. This very, very simple thing that anybody can do. It's the greatest thing about it. You don't have to be smart. You don't have to be rich. You don't have to have a good education. You don't have to be anything special at all. Just human being. But once we begin to sit, of course, all kinds of questions arise. And um, from posture, how to be comfortable, how to do this without being in too much pain or feeling out of balance, um, what to do with the crazy monkey mind that's spinning out stories and stories and movies and movies and tapes and tapes. What is this that's going on in us? And how can we be present? What is this being present that we're always talking about, this now moment? So are there any questions, any discussion about this? A couple of relate pretty much just to time. Um, one is, well, when I meditate at home, you know, I use this alarm clock, it plays a little CD, mm-hmm. a bell for me or whatever. But I found, I tried to meditate for about 20 minutes and I find towards the end of that time, I have a strong uh, desire to look at the clock to see if the time is up. And mm-hmm. one or two times I actually not set the alarm correctly and let the time go by longer than I wanted. Um, so I'm not sure you know, if that's a, a bad thing. <laughs> <laughs> do you have to get up after 20 minutes? you have something else to do? Well, no, I, I mm-hmm. guess I just either... Often I'm meditating before I go to bed, and I'm getting oh, yeah. this kind of like I want to get to bed, and I put everything off, you know. It's like the last thing yeah. of the day or whatever, uh, and I, or if for whatever reason or something, the other thing I want to do later on, just get anxious to to get it over. With. It's very helpful if you can allow yourself enough time not to set the clock, okay. and just go by your own internal um, time. And sometimes you'll find you've only sat 10 minutes, even though it seems like forever. And sometimes it goes by in a flash and you've gone much more than 20 minutes. So that you discover your own rhythm rather than imposing something from the outside on yourself. But if you've got a deadline, of course, you know, it's like setting the clock to get up in the morning. You get used to it. Just try it a little bit at a time. And if you don't force yourself. It takes a long time for the body especially to um, believe that you really mean it 
when you say you're not going to get up and run around anymore. You know, there's something in us that just um, is so key to keep going. And I can feel my body saying, you must be kidding. Come on, come on, it's time to get up now. And I have to say, no, no, it's okay, we've got time. And little by little, if you do a retreat, the first couple of days are really hard because of that. There's this conflicted sense of feeling I should get up and get busy and do something. Do something. Like this isn't doing something. And then after those couple of days, it begins to really quiet down and you begin to um, feel the present moment very strongly and deeply. So, yeah. Yes? physical discomfort that arose like within the last month and it has to do with my hip. feels like it's out of joint. Mm. And I don't know, I don't recall it all being um, injuring it or sitting, you know, I don't remember exactly when it started to happen, but it seems to have persist for about a month. And I'm starting to wonder if I should, you know, I thought, well, it'll does it only happen when you're sitting? Um, yeah, and mostly it's the cross-legged position. Oh, uh, yeah. Like right about here. Um, it takes a while for it to settle mm-hmm. down and, and for me to be able to sit, but then when I bring it back up, it hurts again. Yeah. Or it feels as though, you know, like... Other joints where it cracks, it feels good. You know, because you believe sometimes. Yes. But your hip, it's... It, it you can't do that. No. So I was just wondering if anyone's had this problem or if they've um, had any recommendations. Well, my recommendation always is if it's something is lasting, get it checked. Mm-hmm. Um, if it's just for a few days or even a week or so, then... You can ride it out, and usually it gets better. But if it's not getting better, then I would get it checked out. It might be something real simple. It's a suggestion just from sitting here looking at that knee. It's not really supportive on the phone. I think you need another wedge. <clears throat> this is space. Are you sitting on a real flat pillow? I see. I see. I don't know those very well. I think you need to support me. It's very important. Yeah, one. That one is what I do. That's something you can try. Mm-hmm. Does that help? Yeah, it does. And um, yeah, it does help. Mm-hmm. But it, it just doesn't feel like it used to. Yeah. Yeah, well. <laughs> It's important to be comfortable, because if you're not comfortable, you won't do it. So it's really, um, and it should be comfortable enough that you can more or less relax. It's funny, because we're sitting in this sort of upright position, but if you're balanced in it, you can really relax. Um, and let the, let the bones and muscles take care of themselves. We don't have to impose ourselves on our muscles to hold them. They're already holding by themselves. Um, 
my hand is is already fine. I don't have to be stiff and hold it really stiff to hold it together. I sit Zen. So what you see me doing is the Zen position with this mudra, we call it, where we hold the left hand with the right hand and the thumbs touching. This is the cosmic mudra. But in Vipassana, mostly it's the hands on the knees or, or sometimes the hands held this way. Um, whatever works is, is what you need to do. Whatever keeps you comfortable and, and focused. It's a very focused practice. We're usually all spread out and taking everything in. And when we stop, we begin to focus down on this one place. We take a backward step, one teacher says. Sit down and step back from everything, just for a while. And then when we get up, it all begins to come in again. But we're not so distracted by it. Often we're so distracted, we're we're turned around by the world. And it's very well to learn to take our own place in the world so that we're not spun so hard around by it. We can meet it, meet it with our own integrity. So that's what this is about. Yes? I don't know if this is the right place to ask, but I know that you're focused here on asana or insight meditation. I was just wondering if you might say a few words um, about the long-term impact of vipassana as contrasted with tantra or tiana meditation or other meditation techniques. Oh, I think at, at bottom they're all the same. And different people go to different ones because they approach it differently. And uh, some people are more comfortable with one kind, one flavor. I say it's like Baskin-Robbins. It's all flavors, but it's the same ice cream. It's one basic teaching. It's Shakyamuni Buddha's teaching. And uh, every single school of Buddhism uh, agrees with all of those teachings. And of course, Tantra has its own take that's very elaborate and fancy and colorful. And um, <clears throat> Zen is apparently very austere, though actually it isn't at all. Kind of looks like that, though, the Japanese version. So none of, all of that's extraneous, really. So yeah. I just know that when I was turned with different ones, I, it felt very different. So I understand they, you know, you can get to the top of the mountain and at the top it's all the same, but, you know, which path you take has a lot to do with the scenery and how steep it is, you know, so. But it's different for each person. Some people would find it a cinch to get up the Vipassana way and somebody else would have a very hard time with it. So the, the important thing is to choose for yourself be really careful that you choose the right way, the way that will be that that resonates for you. Right, which is why I'm asking. So yes. What what impact would it have along the way from practicing the pasana for a year? What types of qualities would that tend to? And what kind of shift might I expect from that? 
versus if I did a TM focus on a mantra? Well, I don't know you well enough to know because um, it's really up to you what the impact would be. It's not the teaching itself, it's each one of us and how we come to the teaching. So it's very pragmatic, very scientific kind of, of teaching Buddhism. It's, it's um, uh, trying it out. Nobody can tell you any more than anyone can tell you how to swim. You have to get in the water. And then it's helpful to have somebody in the water with you to, to help you as you get acclimated to this, a, a, new, a new element. But you have to get in the water yourself and let it tell you what, what to do. And then you'll know. It's about self-confidence, too, about, about finding out for ourselves rather than having somebody else tell us. In the end, nobody could get born for us and nobody's going to die for us and nobody can swallow our spit for us either. You know, it's... Each one of us has to do our own thing, and especially with this. Okay? <laughs> try them all out. Yeah. I'm not looking for anyone to tell me what to do, but practices, and I know they're all very different. Very, very different. Not that I know of. No. And I know many people who go back and forth. I know Zen people who sit vipassana. They go up to Spirit Rock three or four times a year. I know Spirit Rock people who come down and sit Zen retreats. Um, I know Zen people who go to the Tibetan teachings and do retreats at Vajrapani and various Tibetan places. So it's especially in America where it's all coming together into, into one place. All these different ethnic um, cultural traditions that were developed differently because of the different worlds that they went into, different countries. Now they're all here. So we're all, we're starting to do it all together. We don't have to separate it out in that way anymore. Do you think it's a legitimate way? I mean, I've actually spent like a month doing one technique and then for whatever reason I shift to something else, but I've heard or read at least people say if you really want to get somewhere, you need to pick one and you know, stick to that one. And you're now suggesting yeah. maybe it's... Well, it's well to pick one. It's well to pick a teacher. It's more about the teacher than it is about the practice. If you can connect with someone who will um, you know, walk along with you that's the most important part. Who can who can encourage and support your practice? And you might find that in any one of the traditions. And you'll know. You'll know when you find find that one. Gil here is a wonderful teacher, so you know, it's worth trying out. I came prepared to talk a little bit about the um, first teacher, the first Buddhist teacher, who did not consider himself to be a Buddhist at all, of course. Um, 
in Zen we celebrate the various um, uh, I don't know um, the special times of Buddha I guess uh, his birthday, his death day, his enlightenment day um, on different days of the year the enlightenment day is in December the birthday is in April and the death day the Parinirvana day is on the 15th of February and in Zen we sit a retreat around that date it sounds kind of lugubrious doesn't it to celebrate a death date but in a, in, in, in a lot of ways it's a very wonderful experience um, Buddhist life was long he lived till he was 80 years old and um, for all, all those years after he was enlightened he lived the very most simple life he just walked from village to village to village through dusty roads and he was friends with everybody that he met and he met everybody children uh, kings prostitutes uh, the lowest kind of workers and the fanciest nobles and the richest women and all of them took him in all of them went to him for teachings and so by the end of his life um, he was known everywhere and very beloved everywhere and since he was so old um, it wasn't a tragedy his death and he himself made it very clear that it was that one of the most essential parts of his teaching were the impermanence of all things and so when his students noticed that he was starting to fail they said my gosh Buddha no, you've, usually you're so so strong and so well put together and you're looking kind of seedy now and Buddha said well all things fall apart right remember I told you <laughs> everything is impermanent he said I'm old I'm falling apart everything that comes to, is put together falls apart it's a law the law of of um, collapse and he went about those last months he had three, three, three more months he decided that he was going to die there was a big earthquake when he decided he gave up the will to live there was a huge earthquake and his student said oh what's that and he said well I've just given up the will to live it's time to go now and then he, he spent those three months walking around from village to village giving last teachings and meeting with people making sure that people um, remembered and answering their questions as well as he could he um, I wrote them down in order that he did them because it was so interesting the way he did he taught the Four Noble Truths, which was the very first turning of the wheel. As soon as he was enlightened, he went to seek out his friends and told them these four truths that um, 
that we add suffering to our ordinary suffering. That we, we, of course, the world is full of hard edges and our body is always falling apart in one way or another. But on top of that, we add all kinds of anguish. And that anguish comes from wanting too much or not wanting, which is another form of wanting, of, of, of desiring, greatly desiring, and greatly pushing things away with the illusion that there's something here and that there's something here that's incomplete. And then the third noble truth that we really don't have to do that. And if we don't do that, suddenly our life is filled with light. And the way not to do that is not to press some magic button or sit meditation for 25 years until suddenly the skies open. It's to live our life in a most simple way. To live with uh, the right viewpoint and a good attitude and use our speech correctly. Speak well with others. Um, now I'm forgetting them. It's the Eightfold Path. Um, make our living in a, in a useful and rightful way. Um, and do our meditation. Base our life on mindfulness, on being awake and present, and having a meditation practice. All of those things keep bringing us back to realizing, one, how ephemeral our life really is and how little we really need. That the truth is that it's all, we all are complete as we are, as we are falling apart. And then he spoke about having confidence in the three treasures. Very important. Buddha, Dharma, or the teaching, and Sangha, the community. Uh, Over and over, he sent people back into the community. And over and over, people from the community came to gather around him for the teachings. So the Buddha and the teachings and the community are really all one thing. All working together. And his teaching always was, uh, depend on each other and depend on yourself. Ultimately, depend on yourself. So that when um, one of his students went to him in his last week and said, how are we going to do our, have our organization without you? Our organization is all centered on you. We don't know what to do. He looked at him and he said, I never set up an organization. I've just been walking around talking to you guys. He said, I never wanted to be an organization, ever. He said, you'll have to deal with that yourself. He said, be your own island. It used to be translated as be your own light, which is another way of that of seeing that Sanskrit word, but now they're agreed mostly that it's be your own island. So it, it, it puts it back to us again. It's really our responsibility. And then in community, 
each of us has that individual responsibility. Very important point. He talked about over and over about virtue, concentration, and understanding. Virtue meaning the precepts, very important basis of our practice, the precepts. Um, No killing, no stealing, no lying, no sexual misconduct, no misusing drugs and alcohol. Um, Very simple, very, very basic. Thich Nhat Hanh has written reams and reams about the precepts. Very interesting um, engagement that he has with the subject of virtue. Very important. When people first began to do this, these practices, um, they thought that you just sat down and did meditation and got enlightened, and it didn't matter what else you were doing because you were doing this pure, wonderful practice. So. They would go out and party hard and <laughs> have a wonderful time. The old beatniks, the Jack Kerouac crowd, the wavy gravy crowd, they all had a wonderful time with, with Buddhism. But they misunderstood the precepts part of it, the virtue side of it. Um, and it's, it, without it, it, it's not truly um, a pure practice. And of course, there are many ways of defining those precepts, many ways. Um, The monks are extremely strict. Um, Theravadan monks are even more strict than the Japanese monks are. So it depends on which which flavor you're involved with, what kind of precepts you commit yourself to. But in this practice, it's the precepts that support us and hold us in every place even in the darkest, darkest hour. So even at the end, he was teaching. He he got very sick um, eating. A feast was given to him, and he got very sick from the the food. And uh, he made sure that the man who served the feast was uh, praised and told that the one who feeds uh, a Buddha his last meal is especially blessed, so he wouldn't feel bad. Otherwise, he would have felt to blame and guilty for it. And then he asked Ananda to fold up a blanket and put it between two trees, trees that were blooming out of season, sal trees. And he lay down on the blanket. And from the heavens, flowers came down and heavenly music started playing. And and it it was very elaborate and very beautiful scene. And... And he got kind of grumpy about it. And he said, well, that's, that's all very nice, he said. But the important thing is for you all to keep, do your practice, to keep, your, keep faith with yourself and do your practice. Don't worry about all this fancy heavenly stuff. He said, um, 
live according to the truth. Know the truth, study the truth, and live according to the truth. And then some of them were weeping. And he said, no, the truth is everything falls apart. You'll fall apart too. It's really okay. I I read recently that a Tibetan Lama was dying and his students were standing around him and sobbing and such distress. And he looked up at them and he said, don't worry, nothing happens. (laughs) (laughs) And then at the very end, um, a, a... a new person came up and started asking him questions about the Dharma. And the student said, oh no, you must go away. The Buddha is dying. You can't bother him with questions at a time like this. And Buddha said, no, no. No, no. Let's let... And he gave him a last teaching and opened up the Dharma for him and then said um, to to Ananda, uh, give him... um, give him the transmission. He can join the group. And so the last thing he did was to ordain someone. Very, very wonderful. Actually, the last thing he did was to invite doubts. He said, okay, guys, this is your last chance. If you have any questions, you'd better ask them now because this is your last chance. I'm just about out of here. And nobody had any questions. He said, ah, that's good. That's good. And then he went through all the different stages, mind stages, that he had outlined and taught all his life. And there are many of them. And, and he slowly went through all the different mind stages, all the way up until there isn't any mind left anymore. It's all completely merged with everything. And uh, some of them said, oh, look. He's gone. He's gone. And somebody said, no, no, watch. He's not finished. And then he went back through all those stages, all the way back down to the first one. (coughs) And then from the first one, from the mindfulness of the body, he went up to the fourth stage. And on the fourth stage, he died. So he was in the completely present moment stage when he left, which I've always thought is quite, quite wonderful. And I always have said, I, don't, I want to be there when it happens. I don't want to miss anything. And that's what he did. He was, he was right here for it. Um, so it was a very simple life. Uh, he did not wear fancy clothes, though people offered him robes, which he wore. Um, He didn't eat fancy food. He just took a bowl and went into town every day. But he was was glad to uh, accept invitations to fancy meals at people's houses and always used those occasions to meet with people face-to-face and heart-to-heart and um, always did some kind of gentle teaching as he met with people. Just as a model for us, I think his his way was uh, very kind 
and, and very encouraging. We don't have to be special. Truth is, we're not special. I mean, whoever we think we are, we're not very special. Or, on the other hand, we're utterly, entirely, and completely special. Both things are true. So, other questions? Discussion? We're supposed to have a discussion now, so. Sal, S A L. And they have a couple of trees there now um, that look, when I saw them about 10 years ago, as if they'd just been newly planted. Uh, and they told me those were, they, I asked if they were sal trees, and they said yes, but I'm not sure they really knew. Um, I think they said yes to please me. <laughs> and I was glad to believe them because it, it's such a, it's a really amazing place. They have a huge uh, stupa that was built by Ashoka. And um, it's, have you seen it? Uh, Kusinagar is the town. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it, when, when Buddha asked to go to Kusinagar to, to die, uh, Ananda said, you don't want to go to a crummy little town like that. He said, that's a nasty little town. You want to go to some nicer place. And Buddha said, no, that, that used to be a very famous and wonderful city with a great king. And he said, that's where I want to go to die. And it's still there. It's still called uh, Kusinagar. A lot of the names have changed since Buddha's time, but that one's still the same. And Ashok, uh, who is the great king who, who converted to Buddhism, built stupas all over India, and um, that's one of the earliest ones on, on the site where Buddha's uh, body was cremated. And it's kind of spooky. You know, you have this, this I don't know, this vibration of, of the end of a great life that happened in that space. Really wonderful. Yeah. In Zen practice, what um, what kind of celebration would you have on this day? We don't do a ceremony, but in particular, at least I was never taught a ceremony. My teacher was kind of a renegade, so I I never know whether I've got the whole story or not. <laughs> as far as I know, there's not a ceremony, um, but we. We usually have a retreat at the same time, and then on that day, we have a discussion um, on that subject. And we've just done that up at Jikoji, so it's very fresh in my mind. When I was asked what I was going to talk about, I thought, oh, I know what I'm going to talk about, because I've just been doing it. Yeah. On Buddha's birthday, we have a real celebration. Uh, there's a baby Buddha and uh, sweet tea. Has anybody done this celebration? You've done it? So nice. Have you done it at Green Gulch? Uh-huh. 
Yes. 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 And make a wish and say a prayer. Yeah. I believe it. It's very, very touching. Yeah. Yes, it is very popular. Yes. Yes. It's Theravadan. It's Southeast Asian. From uh, Sri Lanka and Burma and uh, Thailand. Um, And Jack and Joseph and Sharon. Um, all that group practiced in Southeast Asia. Oh, they westernized it a great deal. Although, you know, if you go to a Bayagiri up in Redwood Valley, they brought it sort of lock, stock, and barrel, uh, Ajahn Amaro and um, uh, Pasano have created a little Thai monastery there that's really pretty much the way it is in Thailand. Um, uh, people can come and practice there in an, in an, uh, as lay people, but they have monks living there and they've built little kutis up in the mountain and um, have little walking spa- spaces for it. It's all set up exactly the way the forest monks do it. So, But what Jack has done... It's in uh, Redwood Valley outside of Ukiah. Oh, you should visit sometime. It's really quite wonderful. And they're very kind there. Very, very wonderful. Um, Generous teachers. But, you know, they're all dressed in the dress that the Thai monks wear in, in hot weather, which is always hot in Thailand, up in this cold in the Mendocino Mountains, you know, with his bare arm. Ooh, it just makes me cold, cold to look at them. But they, they're real tough. They, can, they manage it really well. It's incredible. It, uh, Joseph back east um, took a different tack from the tack that Jack took out here. Uh, they both popularized it in different ways. And then the Ajans set up a monastery and did it all t- another way. And there's a monastery in England also. Um, so uh, it's trying to cover the, as many bases as possible to make open it up to people. At Abayagiri, they have started doing uh, begging practice in Ukiah. They take begging bowls once a week. And at first, it was it was... Nobody could believe that they would, one, that they would do it, and two, that they weren't run out of town on a rail because they did it. And Ukiah is kind of a, I, I don't know, it's a real country town. But after the first few times, people began to expect them. 
and began saving up things for them. And now they know where to go, just in Buddha's time, exactly the same. And their bowl gets filled up, and then they go back. So, And it's, it's not really begging, it's offering people the opportunity to give, to practice giving, which is the first paramita, which is the heart-opening gesture that we make. If we can just let go a little bit, even if, of ten cents, Something happens inside of us. And so that's what that practice is about, is to offer that opportunity for people. Think of that when you say, oh, no, no, that's all right. You don't have to give me. Think of that you can offer someone the opportunity to to give to you. It's hard for us. We're often used to just taking care of ourselves. Thank you very much. But if you soften that edge a little bit, it's a big present to people. Anything else? Lewis? Well, I have a question about time. Um, we sort of have expectations, I think, of rapid success, and I'm always surprised to see how little, and how, how, well, how slow things come. I mean, thinking in terms of months is ridiculous. Years doesn't seem to be too sensible. Um, decades, perhaps. Mm-hmm. Generations, hopefully. <laughs> Is this getting in the right time frame, do you think? It seems like it, doesn't it? Yeah. Yeah. We live in such a speedy time that we want everything done yesterday. And actually, it, it doesn't seem to work that way. It's much, much more slow. And and will to be that way, I, w- I think, always, because things that go too fast are, are superficial. And this is deep and requires a lot of very slow and gradual change in all of us. I remember feeling at first that I would try a technique and it would seem very successful. I was surprisingly successful it would be. But after a month or two, it would fade away, and I'd be left where I had been at the beginning. And then by continuing that same application over eight years, I'm beginning to see it creeping back to about a quarter of what it was (laughs) at the end of the first day. In a way, it's very hard to judge your own practice. It's I mean, it compared to what, anyway? We can't really remember what it was before. We we think we remember, but the truth is, we it, it's not clear what went before. So, in a way, it's better just to enjoy the practice that you're having now and not try to best yourself or, or beat yourself up because it's not very good because you don't know. 
You really don't know. And Lewis, if you have an idea that you really know what the it is that you're expecting in the mind or in your generation. Yeah. It's true. It's true. Little by little, expectations just fall away. Uh, It's pretty bare. And then then we're ready to meet whatever comes in our sitting or in, in our life without judgment and without expectation. If we're if we're free of those, then we can really meet what comes. So uh sounds like you're doing real well. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, where was I just hearing somebody said if you just have sincere practice, if it's just sincere That's all that's required. And in Zen, we always say, while you're sitting, you're enlightened anyway, so you don't have to worry about it. It's already given. But of course, we do work hard. It is hard work. Sometimes it's like digging ditches. It's real hard work. And we need to do it. it for the last 15 minutes. Shall we do that? You said two words about your background. My background? Oh. um, I learned to sit at Tassajara by accident. Um, (laughs) I mean, I got to Tassajara by accident. My husband and I, when we first moved out to California, explored little roads and we explored that little road which turned out to be an amazing road and uh, at the end of it was um, Tassajara that had just had their first practice period the, the winter practice period and had just opened up for their guest season very first guest season and they hardly had any guests and so they said oh please come in come in be our guest so we stayed for the weekend, and um, Suzuki Roshi was there. Yvonne Ran taught us to sit, and my husband loved it because of the hot baths, and I loved it because I learned to sit sasan. And so we kept going back there summer after summer, and after a few years, somebody said to me, that a, a Zen master lived two miles from my house. Did I know that? And I said, well, no. And so he gave me Kobenchino Roshi's um, name and address and schedule and said, oh, you should go there. So that was the beginning. I, it took me a while to get up enough gumption to go there. I was very, very shy and scared to go to a real Zen master. You know, that was a bit much. But eventually I crept into the door and I felt like I'd come home. And I've just been there ever since in one way or another. I was one of the founders of Chikoji, if you know Chikoji, up on Skyline. It's a a little retreat center up there. 
and practiced with Coven um, for 30 years. He just died a year and a half ago. And um, I didn't ever have another teacher, though I, I went to Plum Village and sat with Thich Nhat Hanh and various other teachers. Um, but Coben was my, my, real, my real teacher. And I raised three sons in the meantime and have published poetry and done a lot of things. I have my own my own. That always sounds very strange. I don't own anything, but I sit with various groups, one in San Jose, uh, one in Sunnyvale, one in uh, Willits, one in Arcata, um, one in New Mexico. So I, the group that I'm a part of is called Floating Zendo, and I'm the float, <laughs> the one that floats. 